welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Coming to you not live from a hotel in Chicago where we're prepping for an individual hearing. Wish us luck. That includes you, Chicago OPLA listeners. Four cases this week and I enjoyed them all, even if some weren't the best for non-citizens because others were slam dunks. Gonna bounce around with them all. Enjoy. First up is Tomas Ramos v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on February 2nd, 2022. This case is about reasonable fear interviews and immigration judge review. Mr. Tomas Ramos is from Guatemala but was previously ordered removed, and then he was physically removed. He re-entered the U.S. unlawfully in 2018, and DHS reinstated that final order of removal. Mr. Tomas Ramos, however, expressed a fear of returning to Guatemala, and so he was given a purportedly non-adversarial, reasonable fear interview. If he would have passed, he would have been placed in withholding-only proceedings before an immigration judge. Can't apply for asylum, but he could get withholding of removal or protection under the Torture Convention, thereby protecting his life. What is a reasonable fear? Well, it's, quote, lower than the clear probability standard required to establish eligibility for withholding of removal, but higher than the standard required to establish a credible fear of persecution in expedited removal proceedings, end quote. Put another way, it's standardless. It does, however, require at least somewhat of a showing that, quote, a non-citizen cannot avoid the feared harm by relocating within the country of removal, or that expecting him to relocate would be unreasonable. End quote. But it also has a presumption of future persecution where past persecution is shown. It's like a mini-asylum or withholding of removal hearing. Kind of. It's weird. So in this case, the USCIS asylum officer determined that Mr. Tomas Ramos did not have a reasonable fear, and the IJ agreed. The IJ review isn't really a full appeal either. It's more like a weird pseudo-review by an immigration judge. 
It has to happen very expeditiously within 10 days, and IJ guidance materials state that the, quote, parties may present evidence only at the discretion of the IJ, end quote. Kind of strange stuff. But then again, this all presupposes a prior removal order and subsequent unlawful re-entry. To be fair to the system, as I always am. Anyway, having agreed with the no reasonable fear finding, the IJ put Mr. Tomas Ramos on the path to immediate removal. But Mr. Tomas Ramos petitioned the no reasonable fear finding to the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit agreed with Mr. Tomas Ramos. It's all weird, and here's why. To dive right into the weird, as an initial matter, DHS at first mistakenly deported Mr. Tomas Ramos to Guatemala without giving him the reasonable fear interview that he was owed under the law and which DHS itself promised him. DHS just messed up. And then they brought him back after he sued. After DHS brought him back, they gave him the interview and then said that he failed it. So that's how we're starting off with this one. The basis for Mr. Tomas Ramos's fear was that, quote, gang members had threatened to kill him for resisting their recruitment of his son, end quote. He told the officer about the many death threats and murders of people that he knew for similar reasons. As I mentioned, the asylum officer made a no reasonable fear finding because the officer concluded that, even though credible, the fears of death weren't on account of one of the five protected grounds required of withholding of removal, that is, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Then, for a convention against torture purposes, which doesn't require a nexus to one of those five protected grounds, the officer nevertheless concluded that the Guatemalan government would not acquiesce or consent to the harm. That tanks a cat claim. And again, the IJ agreed. Under the weird procedure for such reviews, it all skipped the BIA and went directly to the Fourth Circuit, which overturned the IJ. First, the Fourth Circuit rejected Oyl's argument that circuits should review these no reasonable fear findings under the absurdly deferential, quote, facially legitimate and bona fide reason, end quote. That standard of review applies to denials of visas by consulate officials abroad, and in practice it's no standard of review at all. Which is why the Fourth Circuit, like all circuits thus far, has rejected Oyl's offer. Rather, the Fourth Circuit reviewed the IJ's finding under the still deferential substantial evidence standard of review, in which it affirms unless, quote, any reasonable adjudicator would be compelled to conclude to the contrary, end quote. Still deferential, but not absurdly so. And not met here, quote, the record compels a finding that Mr. Tomas Ramos was persecuted at least in central part because of his family relationship to his son, which qualifies as a protected ground for withholding purposes, end quote. Remember, family-based particular social groups qualify, as they always have. The Attorney General vacated Attorney General Barr's matter of LEA II. And in any event, in the Fourth Circuit, it has long been the case that, quote, the family provides a prototypical example of a particular social group, end quote. Then to obtain relief, Mr. Tomas Ramos still needs to show that the harm he suffered or fears is on account of or has a nexus to that particular social group. But remember, these are simply reasonable fear proceedings, not a full-on merits hearing. Mr. Tomas Ramos therefore has a lower standard to meet before he gets that full-on merits hearing. And the Fourth Circuit has held that, quote, the threat of death qualifies as persecution, end quote. That's what the Fourth Circuit believed was happening to Mr. Tomas Ramos as a result of his trying to prevent his son's gang recruitment. And apparently, the Fourth Circuit decision Hernandez Avalos v. Lynch is directly on point. If Fourth Circuit practitioners were wondering, 
So with all that, Mr. Tomas Ramos should have been placed in withholding-only proceedings. Now, while the fourth does believe that whether a non-citizen can reasonably relocate is a proper thing for an asylum officer and IJs to consider in these expedited reasonable fear hearings, the IJ's finding that Mr. Tomas Ramos could reasonably relocate here, quote, is called into question by our determination that Mr. Tomas Ramos has established past persecution, end quote. That is, if, as the Fourth Circuit is holding on petition in this case, Mr. Tomas Ramos suffered past persecution on account of a protected ground, he enjoys a presumptively reasonable future fear that can only be rebutted by DHS based on DHS meeting its burden to establish that relocation is reasonable. While the Fourth Circuit doesn't get into it, I'm not sure how that could ever happen in reasonable fear proceedings, as I believe them non-adversarial, so DHS isn't even appearing. I believe, even on review to the IJ. So really, then, it would seem a past persecution finding should likely lead to full-on withholding-only proceedings all the time. And in those proceedings, DHS would then have the opportunity to meet their burden. Again, weird and complicated procedural stuff. Mr. Tomas Ramos gets his day in court and under favorable terms. Congratulations, Michael D. Lieberman and lots of attorneys from Kirkland Ellis and the Legal and Justice Center for the win. Here's one more thing about one more argument. Before affirming the no reasonable fear finding, the IG denied Mr. Tomas Ramos's attorney's request to make a closing argument. That understandably upset Mr. Tomas Ramos's attorneys, who challenged it vigorously on petition for review. The Fourth Circuit didn't rule on that issue because, as just discussed, it granted the petition for other reasons. But the Fourth did, however, note how weird this all was. Have I said that enough? The regulations expressly permit counsel to make closing arguments before the asylum officer, but are silent as to counsel's rights before the IJ. The Ninth Circuit held that non-citizens enjoyed such a right before the IJ in Orozco Lopez v. Garland, discussed on episode 70 of the podcast. Or at least that they had the right to an attorney, at least, before the IJ in reasonable fear proceedings. That's how low the bar is on this at present. Nevertheless, on remand, the Fourth Circuit does, quote, expect that the IJ again will allow Mr. Tomas Ramos to be represented by counsel, and the IJ also may allow counsel to participate to the extent Mr. Tomas Ramos contends is required, obviating any need to address these issues, end quote. So that's kind of a holding, right? And that is Tomas Ramos v. Garland. Next is Hay v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on February 4th, 2022. This case is about asylum from China. Mr. Hay is from China and entered the U.S. without authorization in 2012. He was placed in removal proceedings many years later, where he applied for asylum and related relief. In support, he testified that he was a Christian who attended a house church in China. He described two raids of it, one in 2011 and the other in 2012, and subsequent police detentions, with physical beatings during one of the multi-week detentions and the withholding of food. His father paid a snakehead, a name sometimes used for Chinese smugglers, to smuggle Mr. Hay through Mexico and into the U.S. By the way, there's a fascinating book about all this by the same name if anyone's interested in snakeheads, global human trafficking, and how it works. And the IJ found Mr. Hay credible. But alas, 
The IJ denied relief because, quote, taken together and including the assault by the policemen, it does not rise to the level of persecution, end quote. Without the past persecution finding, Mr. Hay had the burden to establish a well-founded fear of future persecution, which the IJ held he couldn't do because he hadn't shown that the Chinese government was still interested in him, that he'd attend house church again, or that he couldn't reasonably relocate in China. The BIA affirmed. And the Eighth Circuit did too. First, it noted that there's a bit of confusion regarding standards of review, but that the proper standard of review for circuits to review no past persecution or no well-founded fear findings is the well-worn and well-discussed substantial evidence standard. Non-attorney listeners, I'm forever grateful and in awe that you're still listening. Turning then to the substance. The Eighth Circuit held that while the detentions were indeed long, 15 and 30 days respectively, Mr. Hay, quote, presented no evidence of what efforts were made to gain his release, and without more, the IJ could reasonably find that the detentions fell into the category of low-level intimidation and harassment, end quote, rather than persecution. And while it's possible that the Eighth Circuit would recognize, as the Eleventh Circuit has, that being prevented from practicing one's own religion is per se persecution, the Eighth Circuit is skeptical, and in any event, the Eighth explained that Mr. Hay didn't really try to do so after his detentions. Instead, he left for the U.S. Plus, the country condition evidence shows that there are millions of Chinese Christians allowed to practice their faith, albeit the state-approved version. Similar concerns prevented Mr. Hay from establishing well-founded fear, not to mention the amount of time that had lapsed since the events in question. Mr. Hay therefore did not succeed. And just to observe. Regular listeners may recognize the somewhat common fact pattern described in this case, as in other cases, such as, say, fear of gangs in El Salvador. But it is for this very reason that a case-by-case adjudication must be employed in asylum cases. For, while the many similar claims may indeed sometimes support a belief that some individuals are fabricating their claim, it also might indicate, as it would have during the Holocaust or Rwandan genocide, that a large-scale horror against millions is underway. And that is Hay v. Garland. Next up is Singh v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on February 4th, 2022. Back to the good. This case is about deficient notices to appear and in absentia motions to reopen. And just the day before this case was published, I was on John Kishravi's podcast saying that Matter of Lapara, the BIA's decision on the very issue from two weeks ago, is essentially an advisory opinion to the circuits because it's a text-based analysis about the same statute. It does no more than bind IJs until that IJ's circuit either agrees or disagrees with Matter of Lapara. Well, the Ninth Circuit has disagreed. The Ninth now aligns itself with the Fifth Circuit in opposition to the BIA's decision in matter of Lapara, and has held that an in absentia order of removal, where proceedings were initiated based on an NTA that lacks the date, time, or location of the first removal hearing, must be reopened. As to the case at hand, Mr. Singh was ordered removed in absentia after he failed to appear for his removal hearing. The NTA that initiated the case, however, lacked the date, time, and location of the first hearing, as the Pereira and Chavez Supreme Court decisions say that the NTA statute requires. Mr. Singh moved to reopen, claiming that he lacked proper notice of the hearing due to the deficient NTA. If the motion establishes that, that is, if improper notice was given, 
There is no time limit, meaning that proceedings must be reopened following a motion filed at any time, including in future similar cases throughout the Ninth Circuit. Now true, Mr. Singh, as with so many non-citizens, received the follow-up notice of hearing with the missing NTA information. But the Ninth Circuit seems to believe it irrelevant after recent Supreme Court decisions, stating that, quote, the government in this case asks us to approve the same two-step notice process for in absentia removal orders that the Supreme Court rejected in the stop-time rule context in Niz Chavez, end quote. The Ninth Circuit declined the invitation. And that is largely because, as the Fifth Circuit also acknowledged in Rodriguez, that the in absentia statute and in absentia reopening statute expressly reference notice as provided under INA Section 239A, that is, NTA defining statute. The statute itself resolves the issue, and a follow up notice of hearing doesn't cure the problem. Quote, Niz Chavez made clear that the government must provide all statutorily required information in a single notice to appear, not only to trigger the stop time rule, but for all removal proceedings that require notice pursuant to Section 239A. End quote. That's a big quote. The Ninth Circuit did not believe, as the BIA did in matter of Opera, that the statutory text supports a contrary conclusion. Indeed, the Ninth Circuit appears to be saying that reopening aside, IJ shouldn't have even been issuing in absentia orders in the first place where the NTAs were deficient, that the statute precluded even that. We're talking thousands of cases here since 1997. Some of the analysis is quite technical, and there's really no reason to get into it now. If you've got an in absentia order of removal in proceedings that were initiated based on a deficient NTA outside the Ninth or Fifth Circuit, read this case and copy the Ninth Circuit's rationale for distinguishing matter of lapera. That's it. Congratulations, Saad Ahmad, for petitioner and for all like petitioners throughout the Ninth Circuit. And to be clear, this case here is arguably even broader than the Fifth Circuit's in Rodriguez v. Garland, particularly because a different Fifth Circuit panel kind of narrowed the decision in Spagnol Bastos v. Garland a few weeks later, discussed on episode 84 of the podcast. In this case, there is no real question that Mr. Singh received proper notice of the follow-up notices of hearing, because Mr. Singh himself concedes that he provided a friend's address to ICE and the Immigration Court, and that the notices of hearing reached that friend's address, but that the friend just failed to forward those hearing notices to Mr. Singh. Seems like the Ninth Circuit couldn't care less. The focus of the in absentia reopening is on the notice provided in the NTA itself, and so it would very, very strongly appear that non-citizens do not need to establish that they didn't receive the follow-up notice of hearing to succeed on an in absentia motion to reopen in the Ninth Circuit. Because after all, Mr. Singh succeeded. And that is Singh v. Garland. That brings us to matter of FRA, published by the BIA. Another week, another complicated crimmigration case from the BIA. I think the BIA is trying to kill me. I don't blame them. And because the BIA doesn't identify the individual's gender in this case, I'll refer to Mr. or Mrs. FRA, or indeed maybe neither of those genders, as the respondent. The respondent is from Ghana and became a lawful permanent resident in 2013. But afterwards, the respondent got involved in a big cell phone scheme that seems to have involved fraud. The respondent pled guilty in federal court, 
only to conspiracy under 18 U.S.C. section 1349, although it appears that the conviction was actually the relatively common section 1349 conspiracy to commit a section 1343 wire fraud. DHS alleged that this constituted an aggravated felony involving fraud or deceit and involving over $10,000 in loss to the victims under INA section 101A43MI and or an attempt or conspiracy to commit that same aggravated felony, which is itself an aggravated felony, under Section 101A43U. Either would make the respondent lose the green card. Now, before we get into this bad boy, I note that it doesn't appear that anyone argued that this conviction doesn't match the generic definition of a conspiracy, or that the conspiracy conviction necessarily involves fraud or deceit. Not saying the arguments would succeed, just saying the arguments might be there. That's what i do. What was argued was that the conviction didn't involve a loss to the victims of over $10,000. To meet its burden on this issue, and it was DHS's burden because we're talking about removability, DHS alleged that the respondent was ordered to pay forfeiture, traceable to the conviction, in the amount of over $346,000. That's a lot of money. All right. Unlike the fraud or deceit portion of this aggravated felony, whether the amount of loss provision is satisfied requires application of the circumstance-specific approach, an amorphous approach born of Supreme Court frustration and perhaps after staying out too late following a night of partying in Logan Circle. I have my sources. Rather than being limited to the statutory text, this approach permits courts to, quote, look to the facts and circumstances underlying an offender's conviction, end quote, to determine the amount of loss. While courts aren't really limited to specific conviction documents, courts still may only rely on fundamentally fair materials, and, quote, must focus narrowly on loss amounts that are tethered to the counts of conviction, end quote. So, like, if an individual had two convictions out of the same indictment, with a total amount of loss of, say, $11,000 between the two convictions, and one conviction involved fraud while the other didn't, and the BIA couldn't figure out which conviction the $11,000 was tethered to, the conviction probably wouldn't make the non-citizen removable under this aggravated felony provision. Something a bit counterintuitive, and to think about, criminal law attorneys. Anyway, applying the circumstance-specific approach here, the BIA held that, quote, the amount of forfeiture may be considered to determine the amount of loss to the victims under Section 101A43MI if the proceeds received are sufficiently tethered and traceable to the conduct of conviction, end quote. That's the holding. Here's why. In criminal law, quote, forfeiture is punishment to the defendant meant to take away the proceeds received from the criminal actions, end quote. Therefore, according to the BIA, quote, if the loss the victims experienced is equal to the proceeds the offender gained, then the amount ordered for forfeiture, end quote, is relevant to the amount of loss analysis. Also, and quite relevant to conspiracies, quote, in conspiracy convictions, only the proceeds personally acquired by the individual conspirator may be subject to forfeiture. There is no joint and several liability, end quote. So apparently, the BIA believes, relying on Supreme Court precedent, forfeiture in conspiracy cases may be easier to trace back to the non-citizen defendant where there are multiple conspirators. Here, the respondent agreed to a huge forfeiture pursuant to 18 U.S.C. section 981A1C, quote, subjecting to forfeiture all property derived from proceeds traceable to the offense or a conspiracy to commit the offense, end quote. 
The sentencing document relaying that was reliable. The amount was well over $10,000, and according to the BIA, the forfeiture was expressly traced to the conspiracy fraud conviction. So the BIA found the amount of loss required of the aggravated felony provision satisfied. Plus, the respondent's own criminal defense counsel agreed during sentencing, quote, that the respondent received at least 236000 in fraudulent payments from his victims, an amount well over in excess of $10,000, end quote. In reaching this holding, the BIA held that both a sentencing judgment and, quote, letter from the federal prosecutor, end quote, were reliable for circumstance-specific approach purposes. That latter holding is new and interesting. The BIA also held that as the potential loss to the victims exceeded $10,000, the conviction also satisfied the aggravated felony provision at INA Section 101A43U, to wit, a conspiracy to commit a Section A43MI offense. With that settled, the BIA went on to relief, which I'll do my best to get through quickly. First, the BIA held that the conviction was a particularly serious crime for both asylum and withholding purposes. The asylum holding is automatic because the BIA just deemed the conviction an aggravated felony, but for withholding, the BIA held, for the first time I believe, that quote, the nature of the respondent's conviction, which involves attempting or conspiring to obtain money or property through fraud, brings it within the ambit of a particularly serious crime, end quote. As I understand it, such particularly serious crime holdings have generally been limited to violent crimes over the past 30 years in presidential BIA decisions. No longer, said Attorney General Garland's BIA. Having determined that the type of conviction at issue could be a particularly serious crime for withholding of removal purposes, the BIA considered the facts of the conviction, as it must then do under matter of NAM, and held that the specific crime here particularly considering the amount of loss to victims, was particularly serious and barred the respondent from withholding of removal under the INA and the Torture Convention. Addressing then the only remaining protection, deferral of removal under the CAT, the BIA agreed with the IJ that to the extent people are being abused in Ghana, it's not more likely than not going to happen to the respondent. The BIA dismissed the respondent's remaining arguments and dismissed the appeal. Okay. First, trying to turn a negative for non-citizens into a positive, I just put the following in a brief that I'm working on, quoting this decision. As, quote, Forfeiture is a punitive tool used by the government in sentencing to separate a criminal from his ill-gotten gains, end quote. And as, quote, Only the proceeds personally acquired by an individual conspirator may be subject to forfeiture, end quote. The fact that the sentencing court did not order any forfeiture further indicates that no loss to any victim occurred in this case. Makes sense to me. Finally, in the Torture Convention section, the BIA held that, quote, we may take administrative notice of the contents of the State Department report, end quote. And then the BIA proceeded to quote from that document and make findings that the IJ might not have made. It would appear that the BIA might not believe that that is improper fact-finding because it can take administrative notice of the State Department report, and the report was already part of the record. Something to remember if you believe the Department of State report helps your case on appeal. And that is Matter of FRA. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. 
I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.